First, a word about the charts. Could we have the Berean chart, please? Ah. Traditionally, the seals and trumpets and bowls of the tribulation, or vials if you prefer, of the tribulation, Daniel's 70th week, have been charted in sequential order from left to right, as in this chart. The blue area, seven seals. Then green, seven trumpets, seven vials or bowls with the triangle of... Stop it! <laughs> no, no. This is just for reference. If, you, if I wanted you to have the chart, you would have the chart. This is just to show you, and this is one of the best, more recent charts that I have used in my studies. Uh, they lay it out nicely. It's, it's from the Berean Bible Institute. And it has Daniel's 70th week and the church age and then eternity, the millennium. But this is the traditional way it's been done like little marching soldiers left to right. This happens, then this happens, then this happens. And then there's all these that happen at the midpoint. So that's a standard way of showing it. Now I've used this quite a bit. It's been most helpful. So in this, it's implied that one thing does not happen until the one just before it happens. That it's all done sequentially. The trumpets follow the seals and the bowls follow the trumpets. If it were only that simple, it's not. We know that God does not experience time as we do. In the eyes of the Godhead, time with its events can wrap back upon itself as seen in one of my favorite passages in Scripture. I love this. Responding to the Jewish leaders, Jesus said, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So the Jews, rightly, said to him, You're not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, Truly I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. That's great. Jesus' last statement is awkward grammar, but wondrous theology. Before Abraham was even born, Jesus is. The Jews got it. <laughs> they got that Jesus was calling himself God, so they started picking up stones to, to kill him. Now, could we have chart eight, please? This one should be in your hands. Yo. Number eight, please. Nope. Number eight, thank you. My guess is that you've never seen the tribulation charted like this. Chart number eight is an overall organizational arrangement for the tribulation period. There will be subsequent charts in which we'll zoom into the various sections. One we'll have today. Seals, trumpets, bowls for greater detail. But this shows the forest as a whole. Instead of the trees, this shows the forest and the arrangement of it. Now, note a few things here. Between the sixth and seventh items of each series, so instead of working their way across, they come down. Between the sixth and seventh of each series, you'll see what some call 
an interlude, a pause, what I've termed parenthetical visions, which break out of the narrative. And these are shown on the chart as yellow cartouches. In addition to that, there's a larger sequence between the trumpets and bowls right here. that have traditionally been placed at the midpoint of the tribulation. That placement, however, while convenient, really does not accurately categorize some of those parenthetical events. Some do take place at the midpoint, some do not, or they're even more problematic in their placement. Finally, and most important, this chart more accurately reflects the relationship of the seals, trumpets, and bowls to each other. That is, rather than taking place in orderly sequence, one after the other, from seal one to bowl seven, everything is actually contained within the seals. Let me repeat that. Everything is actually contained within the seals. That is, the seventh seal does not release the seven trumpets or introduce them, but is the seven trumpets. Likewise, the seventh trumpet does not release the bowls of wrath, but is the bowls of wrath. Thus, all is contained within the seals. Now, if this strikes you as thoroughly confusing, I'll be discussing this further in subsequent sessions. If, if not immediately over time, this should come make sense to you. But it, I doubt that you'll see any charts that, for the tribulation that look like this. Could have done it horizontally, could have done the seals across the top, trumpets, bowls, but it would still move down because the trumpets are in seal seven. The bowls of wrath are in the third woe, the seventh trumpet, which means if you work your way back, everything is in the seals. Any Questions or thoughts before we move on? Well, as Linda says, from time to time, they're stunned. Okay. So I'm not, you're not raising the scaffold, so I guess I'll move on. The curtain rises. The Apostle Paul, in his second letter to the Thessalonians, reveals that there's a real cause and effect between the rapture of the church with the concomitant departure of the Holy Spirit and the inauguration of the tribulation with the entrance of the Antichrist onto the stage. Let's read that in 2 Thessalonians. Turn, please. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And let's read verses 6 to 10. And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of the lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. 
That passage in condensed form is a portrait of the last seven years in the life of the individual we refer to as the Antichrist. The beast from the sea and the rider of the white horse released by the opening of the first seal. Because we're in the middle of it, we do not sense that the worldwide church, consisting of every follower of Christ, Jesus, indwelt and empowered by the Holy Spirit, effectively stifles, restrains the work of Satan and his disciples on this earth. We see the evil around us. And from our perspective, we think it couldn't possibly get any worse than this. Day by day, we read the headlines and we see things and we think, come Lord Jesus, this is, can't get any worse than this. Believe me, it will. And to a level of depravity and horror we cannot even imagine. Jesus told the disciples that. You won't even be able to imagine how bad it'll be. That horror will be made possible by the sudden absence of righteousness on earth. When the church leaves, the spirit leaves. Now, it doesn't mean that he's, he never comes back to the earth. We'll deal with that later. I believe he does. But more like he did in the Old Testament rather than the New Testament. He, he will come back for a moment, for an event, for a person. But it will not be that continuous environmental impact that he has now. And, of course, the church is gone. So, one split second after the rapture, no church, no spirit, no righteousness on earth. That moment does not invent Antichrist, but it makes way for him. He's been backstage getting ready. And as the curtain, the, the church leaves, the curtain comes up. Now it's his time to do his worst. As Paul states in verse 7, not just multiple antichrists, but the antichrist will already be here working, preparing, but the rapture will cause the curtain to rise on a seven-year period in which they, servants of Satan, will indeed be free to do their worst. Now please turn with me to Revelation 5, and if we could have chart number 9, please. No, Scott, sit down. Chart number 9. There is a scroll, or if you prefer, a book of folded sheets in heaven. Although the word in the Greek, biblion, can refer to either, from its description in verse 1, this seems to be a scroll. Since it is written inside and out, or written inside and on the back, and sealed up with seven seals, Important documents in the first century Why did I lose my place? Say, for example, kingly edicts or, or treaties would be written on a papyrus scroll and once they were completed would be sealed with seven seals. And in that sense, it would be rolled up. Okay, 
here's the scroll. And there you'd be left with the seam, the, the last of the roll. And they'd put seven seals down that to hold it, to seal it up. And only those whose names were on the seals could break the seals to reveal the contents. So these documents would have all the seals on the outside so that all the seals would have to be broken to open the scroll at all. To see anything in it, you'd have to break all seven seals. This scroll, however, seems to be different as chapter 6 tells us. And parenthetically, I've been utterly amazed at the commentators, mostly more contemporary commentators and scholars, who say, well, since, since that has to be the arrangement, since the, of the seven down, you know, one row on the outside. That has to be the arrangement here because as we see, nothing happens until all the seals are broken. And I, I know I'm just a layman. I know I don't have your things hanging on the wall. Like, I don't, but that's not what the text says. Christ opens one seal something happens. He opens the second seal. Something happens or is revealed or is seen. That's what it says. So I, I, it's, it would seem that some commentators have said, well, because this is how they did it in the first century, that has to be what it is here. And they're saying, well, then we have to interpret the text from Revelation in, based on that. And I think I'd rather do it the other way around. I'd like to start with the text and say, okay, God's scroll is different. Each seal, when broken, causes different events to take place immediately, or it reveals a scene from the future. And I've tried to show that. So if you have a scroll and it's, it's rolled like this and you unroll it, there's an initial seal on the right. And as that seal is broken, then you get to read the first page, so to speak. And this, this would have been in the first century or, and before, this would have been the arrangement. And uh, you open the scroll horizontally, and then you read down like this, or actually from, uh, and of course, if it was in Hebrew, you'd read the text from right to left, and then you'd move on. So as you break each seal, the seals would be in the, in the parchment, in the scroll. Multiple seals within the roll rather than all outside. One breaks the first seal, which permits access to a first page, but it stops at the next seal, and that has to be broken before you can move on. Breaking that seal gives access to the next page, and so on. Or if you prefer, seals could have been on the, say, the upper edges of the scroll, so that you, you still couldn't unroll it without breaking the... Uh, breaking the seals. The point is that the unrolling of the papyrus scroll is stopped before every next section. So, we have to ask, what's inside this scroll that can be opened only by, quote, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, verse 5, or a lamb standing as if slain, verse 6. We know what happens when these sections are revealed. We know what visions are seen, what prophecies are foretold, but what is it? What's the text? 
Opinions vary, of course, as to its content. Some say it's the entirety of the Bible. Some say it's the message of the gospel. My position is that this scroll contains all the details of the eschaton. That is, everything that follows. As Christ opens up the scroll, as the seals are broken, these things take place. So, it seems to make sense to me that what is written in the scroll describes these things. Our God is a God who speaks. He's a God of words. His Son is called the Word. When He created this universe, He spoke it into existence. He didn't go to the warehouse and grab the stuff He needed. He didn't even make some incantation. He just said the words. He spoke. And it happened. Words are important in the economy of the Godhead. Here the words are not spoken. They're written down on parchment. Not parchment. Parchment is later. Papyrus. The words are not spoken, but they've been written by God, and the words have such power that when they are revealed, these things that are written occur. That's power. Would that things I write have such power. <laughs> Whoa. No. <laughs> he knows. They don't even have to be recited. Nobody recites the text from the scroll. They're broken, they're revealed, and when they come into the light of day or whatever it is in heaven, it happens. The power of the words on the page is such that they cause the event to occur. This was all recorded by the Godhead back beyond time immemorial. Only a member of that holy Godhead <clears throat> can reveal its contents and set in motion what it contains. And the prophet Daniel tells us why it must be the Christ. Turn please to Daniel chapter 7. <clears throat> Daniel 7. This is Daniel's version of chapter 5 in Revelation. Daniel 7, verses 13 to 14. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and came near before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every tongue might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not be taken away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. That's pretty close to the NASB. That's, that's good. What, what, do you, what did you call that? Oh, like. by the Master Seminary people ah. as an update to the NASB. There's about 29 updates to the NASB. And some of them are reprehensible. Pardon me. Okay. Ah, that was good. Only the Son of Man, which was Jesus' favorite way of referring to himself, can open the scroll because its contents declare his lordship over all, his everlasting dominion, his kingdom upon the throne of David. Uh, 
Linda and I were talking about this earlier this morning, that in the context of why don't we study this more often, the last things, and which I asked the question myself, I, because I don't see this as just, oh, okay, well, we, we won't be a part of it anyway. We're, we're raptured, we're glorified, we're, hey, no problem. What, what is this to have to do with us? I think it has incredible things to do with us. If all you know of Christ Jesus is what you read in the Gospels, well, let me show you something, another aspect of his personality in the last things. He's angry. Now, it's true that in the Gospels, he isn't afraid to speak his mind. One of his favorite words was hypocrites. You whitewashed tombs. He didn't pull any punches. I like that. He, he wasn't a simpering hippie flower child. He spoke his mind. But nothing like what happens in the end. And it has to impact your relationship with Christ right now to see him in full glory, in full authority, in the end times, upon his throne, Sovereign over everything that is. Right now, He's sovereign over your heart. He's sovereign over the church. He's not sovereign over this world. He can affect it. But Satan's in charge on this earth. But there'll come a day when He will not be. And I think knowing that Knowing how this ends up, knowing what the punchline is, has to affect your walk with Christ now. This scroll, beyond everything else it describes, the narrative of the eternal, unshakable rule of Christ Jesus, and the chorus of praise from the, quote, myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands confirms this in verses 12 and 13. Back in Revelation. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. That's our Lord on his throne. So, the first seal, Revelation 6, 1-2. After this time of worship and praise, the Lamb breaks the first seal. Then I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying, as with a voice of thunder, come. Now, sidebar. The King James versions working from a different Greek manuscript, have, quote, come and see. Uh, here and in verses 3, 5, and 7, which is interpreted by quite a few earlier commentators as directed toward John, the witness and narrator, as in, now, come and see, John. Pay attention to what's going to happen here. Come and see. And in support of this, the text immediately following has John recording, and I saw. So, come and see, and I saw. Well, that tracks, sure. A few interpreters even say it is directed toward Jesus himself, which seems rather bizarre. But the better, more reliable manuscripts have just the one thunderous command, come, 
as seen in all our other common versions. Thus, it's apparently directed toward each of the four horses and riders, as in, come forth. He breaks the seal and the voices, come forth. I looked and behold a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. He's armed. The, the breaking of the first seal releases the first rider who sits upon a white horse. He's armed with a bow, which seems to suggest that it's a symbol of distant victory. A sword would be a sign for up close and personal victory. You have to look him in the eye. But a bow will shoot a projectile quite a way, so it's distant victory. And he's been given a crown, a Stephanos. Not the crown of a sovereign. This isn't a gold, jewel-encrusted crown of a sovereign, of a king. This is the wreath given as a prize to a victor. In other words, for a time, this person will have victory. It'll work. His conquest, his goal is to conquer. That's his purpose. And he will for a time. This writer is Antichrist, the principal earthly character for most of the next seven years on earth. As a first example of the challenge inherent in this prophetic book for plotting out a coherent timeline, Antichrist is presented right off the bat, which makes perfect sense. He's revealed now, and he's going to start his campaign. He's going to be, in an earthly sense, in a physical sense on earth, he's going to be the one pushing this campaign. He's already at work making his plans. And, and again, the opening of the seal does not create Antichrist. He doesn't pop up into uh, into view. Antichrist, this just reveals him on the world stage. Yet, much later in the text, in Revelation 13, he's presented again as if making his entrance for the first time, as the beast coming out of the sea. Turn please to Revelation 12. Revelation chapter 12. And let's read verses 17 to 13, 1. And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring, who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Hmm, singular. What did you, that's that New King James? Yeah. Oh, hmm. Singular, that's interesting. As we read further in the passage, it's clear that the beast out of the sea is Antichrist. The dragon is Satan. And the beast out of the earth is the false prophet who works in support of Antichrist. All three comprising an unholy, obscene caricature of the Holy Father, Son, and Spirit comprising this, these comprising the anti-Godhead. That's why I included the handout this week because on the front of it is synonyms for these main characters, at least so far. Uh, because it can get confusing. Well, is it Antichrist? Is it beast? If, if it's just beast, well, there's two beasts. Which beast is it? So it, get, it does get confusing, and maybe this will help, help you keep it straight. Um, the nomenclature of prophetic texts can sometimes be confusing. Um, 
And on the back side of the handout is a handy harmonization of chapter 6 and Christ's eschatological or Olivet Discourse from Matthew 24. They, at least in this portion of it, it, it really keeps pace with each other and you can see it um, tracking together. Now, anyone who has sufficient years behind him knows that most politicians will present one face when they're running for office and another face once they've attained the office. Our current president is perhaps the ultimate example of this. He was sold as a wise, experienced statesman who would bring together into harmony all the warring factions within our nation, as well as bring harmony between the United States and other countries. I don't care whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, it's an empirical fact that that does not at all describe the behavior or the mindset of the one now sitting in the Oval Office. And this illustrates the career of the Antichrist during the Tribulation. Generally speaking, for the first half of the Tribulation, the Antichrist is coming onto the world stage. He's introducing himself. Now, we'll get into it later. I won't go into detail now, but probably this person becomes, and it is a person, this is not a supernatural figure. He's a person. And he's probably, he becomes the head of what is referred in Scripture to the Roman Empire. It'll be a rebirth of the Roman Empire with power throughout the world. We'll dig into that later. So he's not by himself. He's not doing all... He's, he's, he's the head of a structure beneath him. He's clever. He's winsome. He's a strong leader who has all the answers to the world's problems. People are drawn to him like flies to honey. Or should we say like a dog to its vomit? He will eventually be recognized as the savior of the world, a strong leader, a general who wins wars. This describes him during the roughly first half of the tribulation. He's working, he's plotting, he's setting in place those who will assist him in his plan. But his true purpose remains secret, shielded from the rest of the world. Somewhere around the midpoint of the tribulation, that's when he takes over the temple, that's when he sits on his throne, that's when he starts identifying himself as God. And then we see that, well, he's been selling us a bill of goods. F.A. Tatford <clears throat> puts it this way. The brilliant career of this imperial rider on the white horse has been interpreted by the historicists. Pause. Historicists would be those who take everything in the Revelation and say it's all happened in history past. That it's not forward-looking prophecy that it all can be laid out in history, mostly ancient history. So he's been interpreted by the historicists as applying to the golden age of prosperity and good government that elapsed from the death of Domitian to the accession of Commodus. It's far more probable, however, that the reference is to the rise and career of a mighty imperial ruler after the rapture of the church, who brings under his sway a vast territory in an endeavor to maintain peace, order, and prosperity. This is just the beginning of the public career of the individual we call Antichrist. We'll be encountering him at every turn as we journey through these tumultuous seven years. 
As we do, we'll see this human puppet of Satan. And I would take the position that the Antichrist, the person called Antichrist, is as indwelt by Satan as we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Satan takes charge of him. He, he takes him as he took Judas in the time of Christ. As we do, we'll, we'll see this human puppet of Satan become more ambitious, more authoritative, more arrogant, more reprehensible, more beast-like. That is, more like his father, the dragon. I've left time for thoughts and questions. And I see a hand. Be kind. Be kind, Greg. <laughs> this is an observation actually by Allison. But it was interesting at the introduction of, of the Antichrist. Does it sound familiar to you at all? Maybe just... Lay it on me. For, you know, take out the ante. But this rider on a white horse, you know, it kind of reminds me of Revelation 19 and, and, and Allison as well. It's interesting. Uh, I hadn't considered that observation until she said it, but Jesus himself comes on a white horse. That's although right. he bears a sword and not a, a, a bow and an and arrow. I just thought that was that's interesting. That's right. And, and that's why many commentators, because... Later, Christ comes on a white horse. Well, white horse, white horse. Well, it must be Christ. But if you track this, this person coming on this white horse is doing things that cannot be attributed to Christ. Yeah. It's a good parallel, yes. But. Well, it's in heaven that he comes. Oh, fine. Uh, I doubt that most, it's from the scroll that he comes on a white horse. I don't think down here on earth, oh, look at that guy on a white horse. No, no, it's not how it happens. Yeah. That's a good segue into the scroll. I've always been curious, how can it be written on both front and back? Ah, thank you for reminding me. Uh, I meant to stick that in. If I don't write it down, it never happens. Um, An official document from a king, for example, would only be written on the inside to keep it secret. But for common documents, it would be to, because papyrus was expensive, and so they'd use up the whole thing, front and back. But that would just be for these. So it's kind of an oddity that this one says it's written on the front and back. Uh, I mean, if there's anything official, you'd think it'd be this one. Uh, but So I really don't have an answer for that. But yes, it says it's written on the front and backs. Maybe they ran out of room. I don't know. Thoughts? Thoughts on does the Antichrist, the person that is the Antichrist, do they know they are the Antichrist? Notice how I'm killing time, <laughs> formulating. I have always imagined that they do, that they do know, but perhaps that revelation comes upon him during that midpoint, right before it, where he, you know. I, I've, always, I've always wondered, you know, Satan is not stupid. What are his motives? And he's cleverer than anyone in this room. And so he knows the, how it turns out. So I've always, I've always imagined that, well, he's just, I've got so much time, I'm gonna do the most I can, I'm gonna do the worst I can. But I, I was recently reading something else that gave him a different motive for it. Um, 
but he's, he's anti-church, and so, but of course the church is not working in this environment. So um, I, don't, I don't know. Did, did, Jim, you have a thought on that? You just, we just read Second Thessalonians where people who refuse to believe the truth and so be saved were sent a strong delusion. Yeah. And there's many people, many people, who think they're Christian because they can pick verses out of the Bible and believe them, but that doesn't mean they're born again. And I, and I think there's gonna be much deception and many people who are doing things, unrighteous things, thinking they're serving the living God. Just my thought. Well, and a, and a, a portion <coughs> of that, I'll, I'll be right with you. Uh, a portion of that is the fact that as we get closer to the end, it becomes obvious that they're right to the bitter end. You know, we would think, wow, look at all that's happened. They have to believe now. They won't. They will not. They hate Christ to their doom. They know the doom is coming. I Nope, we, we hate him. So there are those who just will not believe. Yes, ma'am. Wow, I just want to say so much, but um, <laughs> I was going to say I have seen a scroll um, at the Master Seminary. One was donated to the Master Seminary, and it was written on the front and the back. And also, I did have a question about a statement that you made. Uh-oh. Uh -oh. I'm sorry. Um, you said God is not sovereign now. Would I that said be Christ Jesus is not sovereign on this earth right now. Right. So can you explain that? Well, the earth was, can, can somebody give me chapter and verse on that one? This earth was given to Satan. Um, but he allows, God have to allow things to happen, right? Yes. Um, doesn't yes. that make him sorry? But this is not, it's, it's I don't know, it, it's splitting hairs. Oh. Am I wrong? I, I'm, I, I think so. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but but it, it's like saying what is free. It's like saying, what is free will? It's how you define it. I mean, I can't give I chapter don't, and verse, but there is that the earth was given to Satan. If you look at the example of Job, Satan could do nothing outside of God's. Yes. So. I, yes. So I would say you're correct in that, or you're implying, you're inferring that. Uh, no, you're implying. He's still. He's, he's in charge of the, God is in, rules the universe and whatever Satan does, he's, he does as, but what's a, I'm trying to think of it. In the oh. temptation of our Lord, Satan tried to offer him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I don't think I imagined that. I just can't think of the chapter and verse, but I, I'm trying, we live in Madison County. We don't own the county. But God has given us sovereign rule over 11 and a half acres in it. The world still belongs to God, but right now, we're, if I wanna cut down a tree, I can cut down a tree. I don't have to ask permission to do it. This, yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Depends on what happens in the next election. Yeah, I, I think it's a tough concept and I'm, I'm not doing a very good job of answering you. Do you think Satan is tethered? Or do you think he has free Well, life? listen to this, and I see that hand, Greg, but listen to this. I've, now here's where I may, I do need to correct something since we're on the topic. I've said many times and I've said in this room, that evil cannot, God cannot permit evil in his presence. He cannot, prevent, he cannot permit sin. That's why we have to have new bodies when we, when we are raptured. When we are resurrected, we need new bodies because these, we need glorified bodies. However, we'll hit a passage here later in Revelation where Satan is kicked out of heaven. And speaking of Job, 
when all the, that story where it takes place in heaven, all the people are gathering around the throne as well as Satan. So in a way that we cannot understand, at least I cannot understand, our Father is holy and he, he cannot have sin in his presence. But Satan has access to the, the throne room in heaven and the attention of Father God. In Job, he's there. But yes, he's on a leash. He asks permission, he's given permission to do his worst up to a point. So yeah, it's, it's tough I'm, and I'm not doing a very good job. Mm -hmm. Yes, Greg. What I was going to say is I, I suspect that uh, Prestina's concern is the, uh, I mean, of course God is still sovereign. He has abdicated that sovereignty to, to Satan for a time, but at any point that God wanted to step in, he could. Yes. At any time the uh, Madison County officials want to stop you, they will. <laughs> yeah, they will. Luke 4, 6 is where Jesus is being tempted. And in that account, here's what it reads. Could be, could be where you were thinking. Uh, starting in verse 5 of chapter 4 of Luke. Then the devil, taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, All this authority I will give you and their glory, for this has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. And the NASB is even more specific. The devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I will give it to whomever I wish. That's what I was referring to. That, yes, God is sovereign over all. Nothing happens without him letting it happen. But this earth, for a time, has given, been given over to this domain of Satan for him to work. I, I know it's disappointing news, but we're not going to solve every question. We're not going to answer every. I think this is one of those studies where at the end we'll say, yeah, but what about? Welcome to my world. Father God, we thank you for this time. We pray that we will leave this room knowing you better than we did when we came in that we'll understand your, your ways as, as mystifying as they can be to mere flesh. We thank you for giving us your word. Now, we pray that that word will stay with us throughout the next week and forever. Amen.